0: Substitution. What does substitution mean? Well, it means to replace someone or something with another person or thing. I mean, in sports, when a substitution is made, one player swaps places with another player. One player who has been on the field of play is brought out of the game, and another player is sent into the game in their place. In school, when the regular teacher is ill, A substitute teacher is brought into the classroom to take their place. Now, to be clear, a substitution is not necessarily inferior to the original either. Just the opposite can be true. The substitute can actually be superior to the one being replaced. Those are the best kind of substitutions, aren't they? I mean, for example, the Nissan Versa that you reserved with the rental car company is no longer available when you're there to get the car. So they substitute it with a Lamborghini for the same price. That's a good substitution. Well, the most important substitution that ever took place in human history is when Jesus Christ substituted himself for us when he was crucified. We're going to be reading about the crucifixion of Jesus today in our Bible study through the Gospel of Matthew. And as we look at the story, I want us to keep in mind that what Jesus is going through in this story and what he went through in real life, the story is a true story, that his suffering and death are a substitution of himself for each of us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says God made him talking about Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God this is the grand substitution the great exchange the unbelievable swapping of places Jesus for us in Galatians 3:13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, or a tree, or wood, or a cross. Jesus took upon himself the condemnation, the judgment, the curse, that was ours and substituted himself for us. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus substituted himself for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we can have a relationship with God. The substitutionary suffering and death of Jesus for us was something spoken of hundreds of years before it happened. In Isaiah 53, verse 4, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him Well, quick review of where we're at in the story here. The Jewish religious leaders arrested Jesus. They put him on trial, condemned him to death for blasphemy, claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah. They then handed him over to the Roman governor, Pilate, to have him executed. They told Pilate that Jesus was claiming to be a king, telling people to stop paying taxes to Rome and wanting to lead a rebellion to overthrow Roman rule of Israel. Pilate, he found no basis for the charges that they had brought against Jesus. He was going to re- release Jesus, but the Jewish crowd demanded that he crucify Jesus instead. Well, Pilate, fearing the crowd would riot, gave in to their demands and ordered that Jesus be crucified, even though Pilate knew he was condemning an innocent person. This is where we're picking up the story today in Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to begin in verse 26, which is where we also left off last time. Matthew 27, verse 26 says, then he, Pilate, released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate, he gave in to the crowd's demands. He hands Jesus over to be flogged and crucified. Flogging the condemned person was often part of the process of crucifying them. Flogging was a gruesome form of punishment. The person was stripped naked, They had their hands tied around a post, and then they were whipped, and the whip that was used had several leather straps with sharp pieces of bone or metal embedded along their lengths. The whip was designed to cut into the person's flesh and rip it open. There was often two men who did the flogging, one on each side of the person, and these were trained professionals at what they did. They knew how to maximize the pain and the suffering while at the same time keeping the person alive and alert. They didn't want the person passing out or dying prematurely. The Jews limited flogging to a maximum of 40 strikes. The Romans had no such limitation. Sometimes the person receiving a Roman flogging didn't survive it. They were literally flogged to death. Verse 27, it says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. So the whole company of Roman soldiers that were there, they get in on the act of mocking and gang-beating Jesus. They parade him around dressed in a robe and a crown that they had made out of the branches of a thorn bush, mocking him, spitting on him, beating him. And when they have finally bored of making fun and beating him, they put his own clothes back on him, it says, and they led him out to be crucified. In verse 32 it says... As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. It was common for the condemned person to be made to carry their own cross beam to the place of crucifixion. It was all part of the humiliating of the person. In the case of Jesus, he's apparently too injured and weak already to manage that. So the soldiers, they grab a man out of the crowd and they make him carry the crossbeam for Jesus. This man that they press into service to carry the cross for Jesus is named Simon. It says he's from Cyrene, which was a large city at that time in what is now Libya in North Africa. In Matthew's telling of the story, he refers to Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus people who were apparently believers known by the people that Mark originally wrote his gospel for. It's interesting to consider that Simon's two sons are both followers of Jesus at the time that Mark wrote his gospel account of the life of Jesus. It it makes us wonder if this man Simon came to believe in Jesus as Messiah on this day He's carrying Jesus' cross for him. What kind of conversation might he and Jesus have had on the way to the place of crucifixion? What things might Simon have observed about Jesus this day as they're traveling along together, which convinced him that he was indeed the Son of God? And then Simon He would have certainly shared his encounter with Jesus, with his family when he got back home. And they, too, would have come to believe in Jesus as Savior. We don't know if that is how things occurred, but it might have. It's certainly interesting to consider. It says they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Crucifixions were done outside of the city of Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha, which means skull. The Latin equivalent is calvaria, from which we get the English word calvary. Try to picture in your mind what this place is like. This is where all of the crucifixions are done. The ground is littered with the remains of the hundreds of crucifixions that have taken place here before. The sickening smell of dead bodies fills the air, vultures circle overhead, the sounds of weeping and crying and wailing can be heard. It is a dark, disgusting, sad, horrifying place. This is where Jesus is executed. It's not a pristine, white, holy setting with 10,000 voice choirs singing Handel's Messiah with the sweet smell of incense in the air. It's a place of death. It's a place of defilement. It's a place where the lowest, poorest, and most vile criminals are literally tortured to death. Verse 34, There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. So Jesus is offered this mixture of wine and gall when he arrives at the place to be executed. This drink was a a painkiller that was given to help numb the person's senses to make the pain of being crucified more bearable. Jesus refuses it choosing to experience the pain and the suffering of the crucifixion with his senses fully intact. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. When they crucified him, crucifixion was a humiliating, painful, torturous, slow death The person was stripped naked, and then iron spikes were driven through each of the person's wrists into the crossbeam. The same would be done to the person's ankles or feet, attaching them to the upright part of the post. The person would then hang there, fully exposed to public view until dead. Death usually came slowly through exhaustion, thirst, exposure to the elements. And eventual suffocation because the person would have to raise himself up to take a breath and they would finally become too weak to do that. The length of time it would take for someone to die could vary widely depending on the physical physical condition of the person and the extent of the injuries that they may have already suffered. For Jesus, because of the physical abuse that he suffered beforehand and the special nature of his death, he died within a few hours. Some, it could take several days for them to die. It says they divided up His clothes by casting lots. So Jesus' clothes, they had been removed when He was nailed to the cross. And the soldiers who were working the execution, they gamble, they cast lots to see which of them will get what of his clothes. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy in Psalm 22:18. 18. It says, they divided my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garments. Verse 36. It says, and sitting down, they... Kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. A sign was sometimes fastened to the cross above the condemned person's head, which stated the charge against him. And in the case of Jesus, he's being crucified for being the King of the Jews. Pilate himself, he gave the instructions concerning what this sign was to say, and he had it written down, it says in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek, so that everyone would be able to read and understand what it said. The religious leaders, they complained to Pilate about the sign in the Gospel of John, this is recounted. They didn't like that it said Jesus was the king of the Jews. They wanted the sign changed to say that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate, he told them he wasn't changing the sign. He meant the sign as a final mocking jab at the religious leaders who had pressured him into executing Jesus. Thirty-eight Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The word translated here in the NIV Bible as rebels, it's the same word that's used to describe Barabbas, who had led an insurrection against the Romans. Bible scholars believe these two men were probably accomplices with Barabbas. If that is so, then in a very literal sense, Jesus took Barabbas' place on the cross. He was the person originally intended to be crucified on that third cross with these other two. Jesus being crucified with these two, it's also a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 53.12. It says that he would be numbered among the transgressors or be included with lawbreakers. He would die a criminal's death. Those who pass by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. The crucifixion of Jesus, it took place in full public view where people could walk by and look up at him hanging there dying. And as the people are walking by, some hurl insults at him and vent their anger at him. This, too, is a fulfillment, a prophecy in Psalm 22, 6. It says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Verse 41 in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of, the, king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let, him, let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. The religious leaders are mocking Jesus. Jesus hanging on the cross and them walking around freely below, looking up at him, watching him die. It appears like the religious leaders have been right all along about Jesus and Jesus is shown to be a fool. They have defeated him and put an end to the silly notions about him being the Messiah, the Son of God. They have put this blasphemer in his place, and they've given him what he deserves. Little do they know that Jesus dying like this is the very thing that has to happen for human beings to be reconciled with God. They say, he saved others, which is obviously a reference to the miraculous powers that he demonstrated healing people of diseases, raising people from the dead, beating thousands with only a few fish and loaves of bread and many other miracles that Jesus did. They witnessed these miracles themselves, and here they are mocking Him. Their own words will one day condemn them. They challenge Him to come down from the cross, and then they'll believe in Him. What what is amazing is that Jesus doesn't come down from the cross he has the ability to come down from the cross but he doesn't he could have prevented all of this from happening but he doesn't Jesus stays on the cross and he dies right in front of all of them as they mock him he stayed there because he loves us (coughs) excuse me Verse 44 says, In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. In Luke's telling of the story, we learn that one of these two guys actually comes to believe Jesus is the Messiah as they are hanging there dying together. And Jesus will say to him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 45, it says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Darkness came over the whole region during those final hours of Jesus' life, symbolizing God's great displeasure with how His beloved Son has been treated. It also symbolizes the judgment of God being placed on Jesus as a sacrifice for humanity's sins. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lemma, sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes here from Psalm 22, verse 1, and we can't possibly know the full depth of the meaning contained in what Jesus says, but on its most basic level, it refers to the separation from the Father that Jesus is experiencing as the judgment and the wrath of God for the sins of the whole human race are poured out on him in this moment. In verse 47, it says, When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. A popular belief at the time was that Elijah would come to help those in trouble. Some thought they heard Jesus calling to Elijah to help him. Eloi sounds similar to Elijah in Aramaic. This wine vinegar that they offer to Jesus, it was an inexpensive beverage that the common people drank for refreshment. Verse 50, says, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So after several hours of torture on the cross, Jesus cries out, it's finished, and he dies. 51, it says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus's resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. So a number of inexplicable things took place at the moment of Jesus' death. First, it says the the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain that's being talked about is the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place in the temple. This curtain being torn from top to bottom, it meant that God is the one who tore that curtain open. If it was, had been one of us, it would have been from the bottom to the top because we would have grabbed the curtain and ripped it up. But it was torn from top to bottom. The most holy place was that part of the temple that only the high priest was allowed to enter, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer blood for his own sins and the sins of the people. It was considered the throne room of Holy God, where the Ark of the Covenant resided, which represented the throne of God. Those were all just pictures of the reality, though, in heaven. Jesus, he entered the real most holy place in heaven as high priest, not with the blood of an animal that had been sacrificed, but with his own blood. And he offered atonement for the sins of the people of this world. Jesus, he has opened up for us through himself a new and living way to God. When that curtain was torn open, it rendered temple worship of the old covenant no longer necessary. Jesus had opened up, through himself, a new kind of relationship that we can have with God. The second miraculous thing that took place at the moment of Jesus' death was an earthquake. It says, it said, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. Earthquakes are not miraculous in and of themselves. They're a normal part of life in California. But the timing of this particular earthquake was miraculous and what it accomplished, the opening of the tombs. And, And that really talks then leads into this third inexplicable, miraculous thing that took place at the death of Jesus. There was some kind of resurrection of holy people that takes place. We don't know exactly what this was, but it functioned as like a precursor of the resurrection that would take place. We're not told who these people were, how long they were visible, and so forth. But whatever happened, it was something very real and witnessed by a number of people at the time. And then in 54... It says, when the centurion, the Roman centurion and those, who, those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. The Roman centurion, in command of the soldiers who had performed the crucifixion of Jesus, had watched the flogging, the mocking, the spitting, the beating, the crucifying, the sneering by people, Jesus' last words, his death, the darkened sky, the earthquake, and all of the rest of it that has happened. He and those with him had never seen anything like this before. These unbelieving Roman soldiers, they saw something in this beaten, beaten, humiliated, dying Jesus that others had refused to recognize in the healthy, living, miracle-performing Jesus. These men knew from the way Jesus died that this was no ordinary man. There was something very different about him. He had not died as other men. How many people had This centurion and his soldiers watched die on a cross, probably hundreds. But Jesus catches their attention. In fact, Jesus' death is so different, so unique, that they say, surely, he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance, They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Jesus had many women who were faithful disciples of his, which was very unusual for a Jewish rabbi in those days. He welcomed women. He treated them with respect as human beings, with equal access to God as men. He gave them a voice. He included them. He broke through cultural taboos of the time that were erected against women. The fact that so many of these women are present at his crucifixion is a beautiful testimony of Jesus' wide-open reach to all people, men, women, children, insiders, outsiders, sinners, saints, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, locals, foreigners, Jews, Gentiles. No one is excluded. Everyone is invited. We we're we're going to stop there in our story this morning. But the story isn't over. To quote Tony Campolo from his very famous sermon, it's Friday but Sunday's coming. The innocent died in place of the guilty on this day. The God of the universe loves the people of this planet so much that he sent his son to die in the Place of the guilty, so that the guilty could share in the benefits and blessings of the innocent. Jesus, the innocent, substituted himself for all of us, the guilty. Every person on this planet is guilty before God. We've all pushed God out of our life, we've all refused to recognize and submit to God's authority over us. We have chosen to make up our own standards of right and wrong rather than follow God's standards of right and wrong. We have rejected God's love extended toward us. We have done terrible things to one another, living self-centered lives. But God has said that we can be forgiven and set free from fear, and guilt, and punishment by accepting his gift, his son's selfless act of dying in our place. I close this morning with the question, have you accepted God's gift? You can do that today if you haven't before. Right now, in this moment, and begin a new life in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We need to acknowledge our guilt before God, that we have sinned, that we're guilty. Recognize that Jesus' death was a substitute for my own. Ask him to forgive us, give us come into our life, and to change us, to repent, change the way we're thinking, the way we're living, make a determined decision that we're going to follow him with our life. He said, you will be forgiven. You will be given a new life with a whole new future. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for substituting yourself for us. For you, Jesus, the innocent one, dying in the place of us, the guilty ones. We thank you, Lord. And I pray for those here today who have never received You into their life that today would be the day that they do that or they would do it right now In this moment that they would say Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Forgive me for my sins I'm turning away from my old life and I'm following you from this day forward come into my life and give me your new life Lord, we all thank you for the new life that you've given us through Jesus. Lord, that that that, that separating curtain, that barrier that kept us out of your presence has been torn wide open by you, Jesus, that through you we can have a relationship with God as his children. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.